You're listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. We're your hosts, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett. And on this episode, we're talking about books of poetry. Turns out this was a challenging subject for both of us. And we heard from many other readers who said that this was the hardest category for them and they were working on the reading challenge this year as well. But we're very excited to bring you three poet interviews that will hopefully change your mind. So first up, we'll talk to Joy McCullough, whose novel, Bloodwater Paint, is a novel in verse for teen readers. And then we talked to Tara Hardy, who is a Washington Book Award winner for her collection, My, 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 My. And finally, uh, we talked to poet Laura Day, who's the writer-in-residence at Hugo House. So all of these authors tackle some difficult subjects. Yeah, we'll cover rape and sexual assault. We'll talk about trauma, abuse, and addiction. We just want to give you a heads up that those things are coming so that you can choose when and where you listen to this episode. My name is Joy McCullough, and I am a playwright and novelist um, for uh, books for kids and teens. Uh, I also live in Shoreline with my two kids and husband and dog and cat, um, and I've been in the Seattle area for 17 years. Your novel, Bloodwater Paint, is a novel in verse. Um, Bloodwater Paint is about um, the painter, and please correct me if I pronounce <laughs> it wrong, Artemisia Gentileschi? Gentileschi. Gentileschi. Very close. <laughs> uh, she's one of the first, or sort of the, the best-known artists of the, female artists of the Renaissance. So how did you first learn about her? I was reading a book. <laughs> I was reading The Robber Bride uh -huh. um, by Margaret Atwood, and she makes just a really quick reference um, to the name Artemisia, and she says something like, I wondered if it was, it was a, I think it's a cafe called the Artemisia Cafe or something, and she says, I wonder if it was rain, uh, named for the artist or the, like, Roman general, or she names three things, and I thought, I haven't heard of any of those people. I've mm -hmm. never heard the name Artemisia. And so I was just curious. And so I went looking for information and it was 2001. Um, so there was internet, but it wasn't anything like the internet we have now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was able to figure out just the barest minimum about who, who the painter was. Mm -hmm. And that sent me to a library. Um, I was living in Southern California at the time and I went to the library and I still remember exactly where I was when I pulled this book off the shelf that was about art history. And I found this um, small little passage about who she was mm -hmm. and what her personal story was. Um, and I was just immediately uh, both, uh, you know, so excited to learn about her, but also outraged that I hadn't known who she was before. You know, it mm -hmm. seemed like a story that that we should hear you know, earlier in our lives, in our formative years. And so I, and at that time I was only writing plays, um, but I, I dove right into research and started writing a play about her. Okay. Uh, so talk about that. It started as a play yes. and you then turned it into a novel. What was that process like and why did you decide to tell the story in multiple ways? Yeah. So, um, I studied theater at Northwestern university and I, I left, um, definitely focused on playwriting and I, I only wrote plays for a lot of years. Um, 
And and if you'd asked me if I'd ever write a novel, I would have said no. I absolutely don't. I only write in dialogue. I can't. Definitely not. Um, and I wrote this play. I started in two thousand one. It didn't have a full production until two thousand fifteen. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it had a lot of like readings and workshops and sort of low level things. Mm-hmm. And people would say, "Oh, it's it's beautiful. It's important. It's whatever." But we're not going to produce it. Um, and finally, 2015, a theater company here in Seattle called Live Girls Theater that mm-hmm. does all new work by women, um, produced it. And, uh, it was, a, it was a wonderful experience. It was at a little theater, um, in the international district mm-hmm. called Theater of Jackson. And, uh, while it was being produced, we, um, we're talking about a, like a rating for it, um, uh, because there was brief nudity and mm-hmm. there's sexual violence in the play. Um, and I, I think we decided on 14 and up, but it got me thinking how much I really hoped that young people would come see the play Mm -hmm. because I really wanted them to know about Artemisia's story. Um, but you know, a small production in one city for a few weeks, even if every, every show sold out, you know, it wasn't going to reach that many people. And at the time I wasn't published yet, but I had been working on fiction for a while and Mm -hmm. I had an agent. Um, and I started to think, well, she's 17 for most of the course of the events of the play. And maybe this could be a YA novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ran it by my agent. I didn't think, I thought he was going to say, that sounds wildly unmarketable. <laughs> <laughs> but instead he said, I would love to read that. Um, and so I started the process of adopting it uh, into a novel. Great. And it became my debut. It sold. <laughs> so for readers who are listeners who aren't familiar with the story, can you give us just sort of a little nutshell of what part of her life is covered in the novel? Sure. Yeah. So she was her father's painting apprentice, which was highly unusual to have a girl uh, working in your art studio. Um, but he he was teaching her and she was very talented and he was making use of that. And she did a lot of the work that he signed his name to. Uh, and so it starts, it starts there where she's doing the work in his studio and she's feeling taken advantage of. Um, and her skills surpass his and he brings in an outside, um, teacher to help her with perspective, um, who ends up raping her and, um, they, they, take it to trial. And it's not a trial for rape because that was not something that existed. Uh, it was property damage because she was her father's property and had been damaged. And so the book and the play cover, um, the trial and, and sort of the aftermath of that. Um, and there you can read the entire transcript of the trial. It exists. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. There's a book called Artemisia Gentileschi by Mary Garrard, and it includes the entire transcript um, so yeah, Interesting. it's fascinating. That's actually come up a couple of other times, uh, over the course of the show, how trial transcripts are one of the few places that women's voices get recorded in history because it's sort of this unusual moment where someone else is doing the writing, you know, women obviously yeah. not often taught to read and write. And suddenly they get to have this, this moment of having their voice you know, not only heard, but actually written down. Yeah. And it's, um, 
it doesn't only give you a whole bunch of information about the attack. It, it gave me so much information about her day-to-day life and the people she was in relationship with. And it was this really comprehensive investigation. And and so you'd hear from um, people who knew her in other contexts, sort of like talking about character, sort of mm-hmm. like character witnesses or talking against her. But it gave so much context mm-hmm. for who she was and even like the part of Rome she lived in because there's references to, oh, well, we were on this street when we saw him and talked to him this one day or whatever uh which helped me like then i took that i was like okay that street and i looked at this map of rome and found you know figured out what neighborhood she lived in and stuff which then led me to mentioning specific things in the book like a certain fountain and a certain bridge that are right there Mm -hmm. um so yeah a ton of information came from the transcript Interesting. And was the trial also unusual that she, not only that she would be a young woman who was painting, but that someone would go on trial for committing this crime against her? Absolutely. And it was for property damage, of course. Um, But yeah, it was very unusual because her, that was basically announcing to everybody that she was damaged property, Mm -hmm. right? So that would harm her prospects Mm -hmm. going forward. Um, So her father is a tricky character in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, But, and, you know, it's really hard to know. You know, I sort of make it that she pushes for him to press charges. Uh, It had to be ultimately his decision, though. And so I feel like um, he's, he's not, he's far from perfect, but he loves her enough that he's willing to go through that. Um, which which I think is rather extraordinary. Yeah, and there's a nice moment in the book where he is kind of like, are you really sure you want to do this? Not because he doesn't want to go through the hassle, but because he's trying to protect her. You mm-hmm. know, he's saying, you know, there's going to be lifelong consequences for you. Right, and for him. Yeah. There will be consequences for him because he relies on her for the work of their studio. Mm-hmm. And if she is, you know, discredited in their community, that's going to change his life too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like I said, the novel is primarily written in verse. Can you talk about the decision to do that instead of to use prose? Yeah. So um, I have been working with this um organization called Pitch Wars, which works with less established writers to help them get their manuscripts ready to get an agent. Um, and I worked with them for a number of years and people would submit pieces to me and I would say, I would choose, I want to work with this manuscript. And for a few years in a row, I picked verse novels to work with and I would tell them straight up, I am not a poet. I don't know anything about verse. I picked your story because I loved your story and your characters, and I feel like I can work with you on those things. The verse, that's up to you. I don't know anything about it. Um, <laughs> but in working on multiple manuscripts with, with their authors in verse, I started to really see the possibilities and really fall in love with the form. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I was thinking about how to adapt, because I'd written, it's my debut novel, but I actually wrote 10 novels. Oh my before. goodness. Yeah. And the, they were all prose before. So I had been trying to write novels in prose. Um, but as I tried to figure out how to adapt this story, there were a number of reasons that verse called to me. One is my background as a playwright. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's a lot of similarity in terms of um, the sparsity of language mm-hmm. and the musicality and the rhythms of language um, and how you have to get a whole bunch of information and emotion across with, you know, in a play, it's a couple of lines in a verse novel, 
it's a couple of lines, but not a dialogue. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so I felt um, an affinity for verse. I started to think, oh, maybe I could do it because mm-hmm. I feel like I'm not a poet, but I am a playwright, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Shakespeare is sort of the ultimate poet, playwright. Mm-hmm. The two sort of feel like they go hand in hand. So I... I That made me think maybe I could do it. Um, And for the story in particular, there are some really horrendous things that happen. Mm -hmm. There's a rape. There's a beheading. Mm -hmm. um, You know, and I could have written those in prose, but to write them in the kind of detail that you write in prose, Mm -hmm. I felt would be not only really hard for me, but very distancing and off-putting for the reader. Mm -hmm. And I wanted the reader to feel the full impact of it without having to, you know, read the descriptions of exactly what happens when you cut off a head, you know? (laughs) Yes. Um, And it's also, you know, the story takes place in the 1600s, but it's very much a story of now, Mm -hmm. right? And that was one of the things that struck me most when I read the trial transcript was this, there's, you know, all of this slut shaming, trying to, you know, tear down her character and who mm-hmm. she was. And, you know, they literally torture her, uh, to prove she's telling the truth. It's, it's very much a story for today. And I wanted, I didn't, I felt like the details of day to day life of the 1600s that you have to include in a prose novel mm-hmm. would be distancing, would, mm-hmm. would make it feel like, well, that was then. Whereas verse really strips things down to sort of just the emotional core. Um, which I felt like would help readers engage more closely with relating it to their own experiences. So kind of related to that, you mentioned that you've worked with some writers who are writing mostly for kids and teens, Mm -hmm, is that correct? mm -hmm. Who are writing in verse. So novels in verse are pretty common for children and young adults, but almost non-existent in the adult world. I know. Do you think there's something (laughs) about poetry that's especially engaging for adolescent readers? I do, and I'll say what, but I also think that the things that are engaging about it for young readers would be equally engaging for adult readers, Uh you know? And so I hope that there, that perhaps, because it's been in the last few years that it's kind of exploded, and the National Book Award winner for young people's Last year was first, and a few of them have been over the last five to ten years, and some of the Newbery Honors, some of the big prizes mm-hmm. are verse novels, and so I hope, I don't know, maybe adult literature will mm-hmm. look at it and go, ooh, they're onto something there. But yeah, I do. I think a couple things. One is the white space on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're dealing with particularly reluctant readers, big blocks of text are real, can be really overwhelming um, and intimidating. Or, you know, to pick up a book and just think, oh, this is just going to take me forever. Um, but you open a verse novel and there's so many fewer words on the page. Um, it, even though some of them are very long, like an Ellen Hopkins verse novel is massively long, but it doesn't look like it when you open it up and you look at, at the words. Um, my mom, actually, she knew the book was in verse. She'd heard me say that, but she didn't really know what that meant until she held a physical copy in. And she opened it up, and she was started reading. And she stopped, and she said, why would you put it into poetry? Because isn't that more of an obstacle for a young reader? And uh, I can't remember if I really answered the question at the time, but I waited, and, and she kept reading. And after a little while, she stopped, and she said, it's actually really easy to read (laughs) you know and she realized that it really it flows easily um so there's that and then also the musicality rhythm um you know there's a reason that we learn the alphabet 
as a song, uh, you know, in nursery rhymes, we, we remember decades later. So I think that kids at any readers really, but kids and teens, I think they respond to rhythm in language, um, and, and all sorts of poetic devices. I was thinking about that too. The blurb on the front of the novel is from Amanda Lovely, yes. who's like an, an Instagram poet, part mm-hmm. of this whole generation of young women, mostly who are writing poetry that suddenly like poetry is cool again and yes. it's popular. And, um, you know, when I was in my early twenties, that was not a thing. No. <laughs> and I, I wonder if there's sort of a back and forth there of mm. like, it feels, um, there's sort of like an emotional immediacy to it that I think when, especially when you're a teenager and everything feels so huge that there's something about poetry that's really distilled. Well, so many of us write poetry, like yes. angst and tortured poetry <laughs> totally. as kids, you know, yeah. or as teenagers. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that we also get this connotation of poetry is difficult because we think of old dead white man poetry from English right. class that we were forced to like analyze in ways they probably didn't even ever intend us to right. um, all loved English teachers uh, but yeah I think that can kind of you know give people like my mom the idea that poetry is hard yeah uh, but it, but it's true that it's also where we turn when we're 15 years old and our heart's been broken yeah you know yeah and I think it sort of has been framed at least in my sort of experience of popular culture as those being too diametrically ex- opposed extremes, Mm -hmm. right? Like there's like serious poetry that's hard and complicated and from a long time ago and uses sentence structures that we don't understand or whatever. And then there's sort of like the stuff that we write when we're kids or teenagers that's sort of like not good, Mm -hmm. but really it's much more of like a continuum and those two things are, are talking to each other. And in a book like this where it is, it's so emotional and these really difficult things are happening to her, it it feel it can capture that sort of immediacy mm-hmm. in a way that prose doesn't always or it's particularly well suited without being sort of like I'm 15 and I have my heart broken. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I think it can be interesting to think too about who who is doing the writing and who is doing the critiquing because even the term Instagram poets, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's dismissive, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and there are people in the sort of literary poetry world who would very much look down on an Amanda Lovelace, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but if you look at the way her work connects, mm-hmm. you know, with young people, I got to do an event with her here a few months ago. She came to town. We were third place books and there were like maybe two people there for me and Everyone else was her, and we sat at the signing table together, though, and I got to hear absolutely... The people had... So many people had driven from hours and hours away, mm-hmm. and they were just sobbing to meet her, and they she meant so much to them, mm-hmm. and she had inspired them to write, mm-hmm. and, you know, and so... Uh, she's a young woman, um, but she, you know, and so I think that automatically things that are created by young women often get discounted. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is doing something really right to connect yeah. with so many readers and get them excited about poetry in a way that some of the more stuffy <laughs> literary <laughs> kind of poets who might, you know, scoff at that kind of poetry yeah. aren't connecting. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's such an interesting sort of twist in the story of poetry and pop culture, the way that that it's evolving, sort of this novels and verse thing that's happening Mm -hmm. and this poetry 
in new places, Mm -hmm. new voices kind of thing. So you mentioned uh, that you had not written poetry before. (laughs) Are you continuing to write poetry now or are you kind of done? No, I'm continuing to write novels in verse. Okay. So um, I've... When you told me that that you wanted me to come in for this series, I thought you might have chosen my book to represent young adult or maybe historical. Uh, when you said it was for poetry, just like my all my imposter syndrome <laughs> flags went up because I don't I don't identify as a poet, mm-hmm. even though I've got this book in verse. Um, and I think the thing is that I I need story, you know, I need to follow a character through. Um, and so I've never written or really read very much standalone kind of poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love novels in verse. I, I read a ton. And, um, so Blood, Butter, Paint was my debut novel. Um, my second novel is coming in April and it's a book for younger readers and it's in prose. But then my, third book that will come out, which is my second YA novel, mm-hmm. um, is half in prose. It goes back and forth between prose and verse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am continuing uh, the verse the verse journey. <laughs> I feel like I've learned so much with Blood, Water, Paint, and now I'm trying to, you know, keep challenging myself. Do you have, now that you are thinking about verse, whether it's in novels or just poems that are separate out in the world, do you have some favorite poetry that you could tell us about? Yes. So my suggestions are all in um, young adult and middle grade, because like you said, that's sort of where we're seeing verse novels booming. Um, One of them is a book called 500 Words or Less by Julia de Rosario. And it is set in a fictional Bellevue um, that's called Maidenbauer. (laughs) And it's about this girl at a private school who um, sort of falls into writing people's college entrance essays for them, Mm -hmm. her classmates, um, and then has to sort of deal with all of the morality issues around that um, while also encountering her classmates' lives, people that she had you know, maybe been judging as one thing and then she's reading their college essay where they bear their soul. Um, so that's 500 words or less and it's wonderful. Um, Mary's Monster by Lita Judge is, if people are interested in my book about a historical figure, they would probably love this. It's about Mary Shelley mm-hmm. and it is also heavily illustrated. So it tells you all about her life from childhood through, um, you know, her marriage to Shelley um, and writing Frankenstein and all of that, but it's also got this just like haunting art to go with the verse. Um, Yeah, and because there's, you know, there's so much white space on a verse page, there's so much room for the art, Mm -hmm. you know, with the the words, so it's lovely. Um, Long Way Down Mm -hmm. by Jason Reynolds, who is amazing, Um, but for people who don't know him, because he is, he writes in middle grade and YA and he writes prolifically and he writes prose and he writes first. He sort of does everything. Um, he even writes, he did a, it's Spider-Man, um, mm-hmm. book too, mm-hmm. Miles Morales. Um, but long way down, which got a bunch of awards and things, um, is about a boy whose brother has just been murdered and he gets a gun and he gets in an elevator and the entire book takes place in the ride down to the ground with a gun and his intention is to go to get revenge. Um, but you see him sort of work through uh, everything that has led him to there and 
figuring out how to move forward when when the elevator dings and he's there Mm -hmm. on the ground floor. Um, And then I'll mention one more. um, The Moon Within by Aida Salazar, which is a middle grade novel, which is about a girl who is um, just getting her period for the first time. And her mother wants to do all of these like traditional ceremonies and bring all of her tias and women in her life to come do these celebration of menstruation things and she's mortified Mm -hmm. she's like 12 or 13 or whatever and she's just she's just horrified by it all and there's all these really interesting questions of um culture and identity and womanhood and it's just really open and frank Mm -hmm. about sexuality and menstruation and girlhood um and it's just beautiful so those are my recommendations. Wonderful. Thank you. Yes. Uh, and then can you tell us what you're reading now? Yes. Um, I am reading a book. Well, actually, I just finished called 13 Doorways, Wolves Behind Them All by Laura Ruby. Mm-hmm. She wrote Bone Gap. Yes. yes. I loved Bone Gap. Yes. So this book comes out October 1st. So it'll probably be out by the time this comes out. Um, it is beautiful and haunting. It is about... Two young women, one is dead. Uh, it's, it's narrated by this ghost. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in the 1940s in Chicago. And the ghost tells the story of this other young woman who has been abandoned in an orphanage, even though her father's still alive. Um, and both of the women, young women are trying to sort of figure out how they got to where they're at in the midst of, you know, war going on around them and, um, and, and figuring out how to move forward. And it's just, it's gorgeous writing and it's, um, really subtle. It builds in this way that you just don't even notice. And then suddenly it's exploding in the ending into just one of those incredibly stunning books that as a writer I finish them and I go why why am I even trying to do this when there are people like this um so yeah and if anyone hasn't read Bone Gap um I would also really recommend that it's not that neither of those are verse um she writes in prose but yeah but she's I agree with you just incredible yeah yeah yes and she writes middle grade as well so thank you so much for coming (laughs) it was a pleasure to talk to you thank you this was fun describe myself as a working class queer disabled femme and um, I teach a number of places. I teach at University Beyond Bars in the Monroe Prison. I teach at Hugo House. I teach at um, Path with Art which is an organization that provides um, arts education for people who otherwise wouldn't have access because they're dealing with houselessness or recovery issues or disability Um, and I'm brand new faculty at Evergreen State College which is exciting. So your lived experiences include 
surviving abuse, addiction, and chronic illness. Can you share with us how those experiences have shaped your writing? Yeah, I sure can. Thanks for asking. Um, I'm going to be very direct. I don't know if it's appropriate to be really direct, um, but I'm going to be, and I'm going to say that I started writing in my late 20s when the choice was um, kill myself or start speaking about my life. And so writing is probably the primary thing in addition to community, um, but I was pretty isolated at the time, so I didn't have community yet. Writing was the thing that saved my life and was and always has been a path for um, survival and joy um, and connection. Um, in terms of trauma itself, being an abuse survivor, um, although other kinds of trauma too, um, I find that writing poems actually not only does it give me an outlet to speak about my experience, but it also reduces symptoms. There are therapies that are being done with um, veterans who are experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder, and those therapies include telling the story over and over and over and over again while somebody compassionately witnesses or listens. Um, and uh, what what's being found is that people's symptoms are decreasing after just just from being heard just from being compassionately witnessed and that's been true for me and uh one of the surprising things was that i just started writing my story mostly in the form of poetry in the beginning although i'm also a memoir writer a story writer um and uh when i started sharing those things people responded it was the weirdest thing and so um, i didn't expect it at all and I found other survivors of, in particular, child sexual assault, but I also found people who were survivors of different kinds of trauma. Um, veterans of war, you know, were sort of drawn to what I was doing. And through that, I found connection and I found community. And um, I think that, uh, well, I know that community and connection is such a huge part of why people survive. Um, in terms of addiction, um, I want to say that... I think I agree with David Sheff when he wrote in his book, Clean, that addiction is um, a predictable outgrowth of trauma, um, that people try to take care of ourselves and deaden the pain in whatever way we have access to. When I was a teenager, it was cheap alcohol. And so from the instant I, I drank alcohol, I was an alcoholic and I could not get enough of this new thing called pain relief and called confidence in a bottle. And so um, uh, when I started writing, and I started repairing my relationship to my creative self, um, that's when I stopped wanting to drink as much. Um, there was something that made me want to be conscious and awake. And so um, addiction, that, that's my response to addiction. And in terms of chronic illness, um, it's interesting. When I got sick, I guess it was, well, when I got so sick that I couldn't ignore it anymore about eight years ago, What's the day today? Wow, it's almost to the date, actually, eight years ago. Um, I had written myself into survival from child sexual assault. And so when I got physically ill, I, my first instinct was to just start writing. Because I was like, well, it saved me before. Maybe it will save me again. And um, because isolation is such a central part of living with illness or living with disability, um, writing became critical because it was a way that I tried to communicate and connect with the outside world. And it and it's a way that I continue to metabolize 
what I call the three primary emotions connected with being chronically ill. One of them is envy of people who aren't limited in this way. The other one is rage because the world, um, just to be blunt again, uh, because the world isn't set up for people with disabilities. And um, the hardest part about being sick is dealing with an able-bodied world. Um, and then the third thing is grief. It's the losses are daily. The things that I lose are daily in terms of um, chronic illness. And so metabolizing those things through writing has been essential. And while I can't say that writing cured me, I'm not even sure I believe in that word cure anymore because I'm interested in um, breaking up with the health binary um, of healthy, not healthy. I think that I think that's a myth, and I think that that's a binary that's really dangerous to a lot of people. But here's my point. My point is um, that uh, writing has been critical to metabolizing grief and loss. Um, I want to give a shout out to any other chronically ill people out there who are listening, who are at home and isolated. And I want to say I'm so with you, and I'm so um, I'm so with you in solidarity, and your voices matter to me. And um, I want to know who you are, so please write to me. Um, I briefly want to say that I have always been, I don't know why I think this was factory installed. I don't think I got it along the way. I don't think I acquired it. I think it was factory installed, but I have always been a joy person. But chronic illness has insisted that I also have, um, that I also develop a loving relationship with rage, with anger, um, because it is part of what helps chronically ill people cope. And I have had the great privilege to be mentored by disability justice activists, um, one of whom is a dear friend of mine, uh, just came out with a book called Care Work, actually, Leo Lakshmi Piepshna Samarasinghe, as, uh, as a survivor of chronic illness um, and uh, as somebody who is dealing with internalized ableism now in a brand new way that I wasn't before. So that's kind of a long answer to that question, but it's a big question. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, being a survivor of trauma, addiction, and then also chronic illness writing has been critical to all three of us. And then my, 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 you write about the impact of your diagnosis and the power of naming a thing. Um, what can that poem demonstrate to readers about the power of words? Great question. Great question. Um, it's interesting. I was thinking about this question, and what I wanted to talk about is the fact that I think you're referring to the poem Diagnosis, yes. and in that poem, it's all about diagnosis, but I never named the diagnosis. And I do that on purpose because one of the things that I found is that people want to know the name of my disease, the name of my diseases. They want to know what they can call it. And um, I think it's well-intentioned, um, but I find that once people know the names, it's easier to distance themselves. It's easier to think about, oh, I don't have that. That's how I'm protected. Let me, let me back up a second and say that as a, when I've written about being a survivor of father-daughter incest, people have been way more interested in those poems than they are about chronic illness. Why? Because incest or child sexual assault has either happened to you or it hasn't. But with illness, we all have fragile bodies and it is something that can happen to anyone in an instant, and that's how it happened for me. Um, I woke up one morning, I had red spots all over my body. Um, I went to the hospital, I had a platelet count of zero. 
Um, and, you know, normal platelet counts are between 150 and 450, so I had zero, so I was at risk for spontaneously bleeding to death at any moment. And not to be dramatic, but it was true. And, um, uh, oh gosh, I just got lost. So, oh, my point is that um, what I want people to hold when they read that poem is the solidarity that we all have with the connection that we all have with one another um, through living in fragile bodies, um, in frail bodies. Um, they're also powerful, and our bodies are also powerful and strong, but they're also, um, human frailty is not contagious. It's just a state of things. And so I deliberately don't mention diagnosis because I want people to sit with that. Uh, but one of the things that I did this summer was I attended a faculty training, a faculty institute on um, working with neurodivergent students. And we talked about the double edge of a diagnosis because a diagnosis is useful in so much as it's a tool to open doors. But often people don't have access to getting diagnosis because it's expensive to get diagnosis. And the limitation around diagnosis is also as soon as people hear it, they think they know something about it about a person and they really don't because everyone's experience is so much different. So diagnosis is double-edged in particular for those of us, and I'm also going to give a shout out to other people who are chronically ill who are dealing with this, people who have these um, ongoing autoimmune diseases that are so often disbelieved, crazy made, misdiagnosed um, by the medical industrial complex, basically, um, and a lot of us have medical trauma stemming from that. It's it's a really, how am I going to say this? Um, it's a painful thing. It's a challenging thing to walk around with disease, that illness that um, impacts me every day in such intense ways in terms of fatigue, in terms of pain, and to have the medical profession not believe that I'm dealing with this which isn't wholly true. I have found medical professionals, professionals who have been willing to be helpful, but I've found plenty who are not. And it's been, it's just really painful. Um, so uh, anyway, diagnosis is, is, has many facets to it. And so thanks for asking that question. A lot of people learn very early that poetry either isn't for them or isn't mm -hmm. accessible. Yeah. They don't understand it. Yeah. And We've heard from many people during the course of this challenge, this is the hardest category. Like, how do I find poetry that I'm going to love? And I'm, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about why for so many people, poetry is either mysterious or challenging or just not as easy as finding other types of work might be. Well, I think it's about two things. One, I think it's the fact that um, arts programs have been cut in schools period. So it's hard to know um, what you're looking at in the art form unless you've been um, warmly, lovingly invited to look at it and to study it and to know its elements. Um, and then the other thing is that um, the more privileged you are, the more likely you are to have work get published. I think that I think that privilege is involved in publishing. I know it is for me. The fact that I've had work published is related to the fact, you know, white privilege works for me every single second of every day, including when I'm sleeping. The fact that I was able-bodied for so long gave me access to community in a way that if I had been disabled from the beginning, I would never have had access to. So my privileges have been involved with getting work published. And um, uh, so I think that if people aren't 
finding work that speaks to them, it can be a function of um, finding work that is obscure, that locks them out. That um, I teach at Hugo House, and well, Hugo House is um, it's an awesome place. It's also a place where a lot of the folks in my classes, not all, but a lot, have a certain level of privilege. There are tons of women in my classes. You know, 95% of the people in my classes are queer, um, non-binary, trans, and or women. And, um, and yet the publications don't, don't reflect that at all. They don't reflect um, who is actually writing. And so I think it can be find, hard to find work that um, reflects your life. Speaking of work that reflects your life, uh, who are some of your favorite poets and what are you reading now? Uh, I am rereading Dinah Smith's Don't Call Us Dead, um, which is a remarkable book. I'm actually, um, we're reading it in my classroom in uh, at Evergreen. And um, some of my favorite poets, I love Natalie Diaz. Um, I love Leah Lakshmi Piafshana Samarasinghe, who has a new book out called Tongue Breaker. Um, I love Rachel McKibbins. I love um, Ocean Vuong. And probably my favorite poet is a local poet by the name of Eva Barton, um, somebody who is a performance poet. And they are remarkable and change me, rearrange me, you know, constantly with uh, their new work. What can we look forward to hearing from you next? What are you working on? You know, I'm working on a number of things. I'm working on a book of poems, and that book talks about disability and chronic illness. I'm also really trying to push towards looking more deeply at privilege and writing about privilege, white privilege, um, writing about the years that I was able-bodied. Um, and uh, I'm also working on a memoir, and the memoir shifts under my feet. Um, it is a book that is going to explore surviving and recovery and finally getting the appropriate trauma diagnosis in order to actually get help that could impact my life. It took me many years to get that um, diagnosis. And uh, I would say that the primary message of the book is about Mm, inviting the world to consider, now I recognize this is challenging, but to consider breaking up with the victim-perpetrator binary. I think that that binary is um, not, doesn't hold the full picture. I teach in a prison, and uh, the more I do that work, the more I, A, realize that we lock up the people who are most traumatized. In fact, I teach at the men's prison, which does not mean the only people in my classes there are men. There are um, non-binary and trans people in my classes. Um, but I teach in a place um, where 95% of the classroom are men. And um, what I expected was to walk in there and find a bunch of perpetrators. But what I found was people with trauma histories who I relate to. Um, I had never been in a classroom before where people's trauma histories uh, so intensely matched my own. And I felt normal um, in a way that I had never felt normal before um, the first time I walked in to teach in that classroom. And um, while uh, a number of those folks had um, 
perpetrated violence, have perpetrated violence, um, it is so easily traceable to uh, surviving trauma and surviving violence as children, being homeless as being houseless as children, um, and uh, it concerns me um, that we continue to invest in that dichotomy of victim perpetrator. The longer I live, the more I come to believe that there is one thing and it is human. And um, what do I want to say about that? I know it's a challenging notion, but I think that, well, I've been an anti-violence activist uh, for over 30 years and in the amount of time, you know, and in my 20s, I was really involved with efforts to criminalize domestic violence, to have mandatory arrest um, in situations of domestic abuse. And um, in all the time that I've been investing in criminalizing and othering people who commit violence, um, it has done 0% to reduce the level of violence. And so I think we need to start looking at other options for intervening. And um, the book will explore being a survivor. The book will explore ways, um, primarily through addictions, but um, ways that I have transgressed other humans. and. Um, that I really did that. Um, I'm not trying to abdicate, abdicate personal responsibility, but in many ways I did that because I didn't get factory installed boundaries like some people do as children. I had to learn about things and I had to get the appropriate treatment in order to be somebody who could trust myself with boundaries. And, um, and to look at, I hope that the book rehumanizes my father. That's one of my goals. I want the book to um, humanize um, people who have found ourselves outside of having a moral compass. And I want the book to look at what it might take to gain and learn and retain and hold on to and be able to act with a moral compass. And um, I'm lost in it. Sometimes I feel like I'm drowning in this book. It's been a, it's a book that I've been writing for nearly 20 years. Um, but I want to tell the whole story, the whole picture, because if I have one thing to contribute to humanity, it's going to be this story. And it's going to be, um, I hope, something that will matter um, related to violence and survival. Laura Day, um, and I live near here in Renton, Washington. I am a poet, and I also teach school and write curriculum for um, our local school district here in Bellevue. Um, and I've written two books of poetry. One is called Tributaries, and my newest book is called Instruments of the True Measure. And um, a lot of my poetry is um, centered around my um, Shawnee history. Um, so it's very indigenous in nature and lens. So you are currently serving, in addition to all the other things you do, as the poet in residence at Hugo House. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, so Hugo House is in Seattle, and it's 
um, a writing institution that I've interacted with in all kinds of different ways, um, almost from the time I moved back to Seattle from getting my um, associate's degree. So I was a student in many, many classes at Hugo House. A lot of the books, um, the poems in my books were, they started in Hugo House classes. I was also a Hugo House fellow. So I was part of a cohort where um, we got support from writers, from Hugo House staff, and um, kind of helped guide my first manuscript. And now um, as the poet in residence, I get more of an opportunity to help others. Um, so I'll teach some classes and I have the capacity to have an hour long consultation with any member of the public from anywhere. And so anyone can come sign up for that. It's free and it can be directed in any way people like. It can be to look at work, to look at books together, to create new work. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. Cool. And if people want to take you up on that offer, how do they contact you? Go ahead to do that. Sure. So um, I'll be listed as the writer in residence and then you can contact me through Hugo House and schedule a time and place. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so one of the themes of your newest collection, which is the Instruments of True Measure, is mapping and making space of making sense of space and land. How do you place and uh, demarcating space serve as metaphor in your work? That's a great question. I guess um, I'll, I can answer it in a little bit of a story. So um, I'm a citizen of the Shawnee Nation. And our tribal community right now is located in northeastern Oklahoma, has been for a long time, but that's not our original homeland. Originally, we're from kind of the Ohio River Basin area, a very rich, important kind of central location. And um, the Shawnee were removed really violently um, in the 1830s. So that's part of the beginning of kind of how I looked at this fascination with maps and mapping kind of as an act of, um, I guess, colonialism and suppression of indigenous, um, indigenous sense of land. So anyway, in the area where we lived in Ohio, um, it is America's beginning point was located there. So um, the, the first point where all sort of organized surveying began in America was actually in kind of the heart of the Shawnee homeland. And I don't think it was an accident. I think it was kind of an act of war um, and an act of kind of assertion of settler colonialism to begin measuring land in this very kind of mathematical fashion. So I think that that experience of seeing that mapping and, and experiencing that land as such a loss, um, it gave me this sense of an interesting metaphor where, you know, I guess I came to the conclusion that anything mapped and measured can no longer be whole and it creates a distance between humans and land that I think really informs American identity but is in counter to um, indigenous or Shawnee identity with land. So it was a long fascination for me but also kind of a painful fascination. Yeah, uh, sort of related to that, I'm interested in the way that you name land in that work um, and you use latitude and longitude a lot. Can you talk a little bit more about language and naming place? Yeah, I, that's another kind of, um, I guess, an interesting distance that I feel from, from land. And it's that kind of marking of latitude and longitude that I utilize in the book. To me, it's like a surgical scar. It, it's a very painful 
naming, but I think in one of the poems I say that I don't have the words to identify this land um, that's been lost for, for me. So I have to utilize this colonial structure of naming. And so for me, those, those, that demarcation is, it shows kind of that, as a writer, my, my inability to express kind of what I'm reaching for. And so I think there's tension in that symbolic use of, of landmark demarcation that, you know, it's, it's all on the surface. I can never, I'm always wanting to get underneath it, but um, I think that's what caused me to utilize that. And in the manuscript, usually when I utilize those marks, it's the moments of the most intense pain in the manuscript. The first poem, I think, has a pretty strong connection to these things we've been talking about. So I, I could read that now. That'd be great. Okay. This is the first poem in the collection. It's called Nationhood. I'm a citizen of two nations, Shawnee and American. I have one son who is a citizen of three. Before he was born, I learned that, like all infants, he would need to experience a change of heart at birth in order to survive. When a baby successfully breathes in through the lungs, the heart changes from parallel flow to serial flow, and the shunt between right and left atriums closes. Our new bodies obliterate old frontiers. North America is mistakenly called nascent. The Shawnee Nation is mistakenly called moribund. America established a mathematical beginning point in 1785 in what was then called the Northwest Territory. Before that, it was known in many languages as the Eastern Range of the Shawnee, Miami, and Huron homelands. I do not have the Shawnee words to describe this place. The notation that is available to me is 40 degrees, 38 minutes, 32.61 seconds north, 80 degrees, 31 minutes, 9.76 seconds west. So the book includes a series of poems that follow the lives of these two brothers, sort of throughout this removal that you're talking about. How much did your own family history inspire those poems? That's an interesting question, um, because certainly my family and ancestral history informs everything I write to a really large extent. But at the same time, um, there are quite a lot of sort of cultural strictures um, in, in Shawnee culture about utilizing names and ancestral stories because they don't, of course, just belong to me. Um, so I would say this is kind of like a mix or kind of a, a creation of lots of different ancestral stories and experiences and um, also kind of like a, a reaching for understanding of a history that mostly is very difficult for me to access because it's a it's a history of genocide um so very um very much connected to stories i was told um by family by tribal members um and then by research um as well i think poetry lends itself really well to i i would call it a more authentic historical record because um, it hinges a lot on ambiguity, and that's what family story does too. The story will change depending on the teller and the space. So um, I really am always drawn to poetry because of that that kind of central place for ambiguity. Um, and even as I was writing 
that process um, was really significant to me. And I think as I wrote the first book and into this book, I went through this kind of profound change of heart about what academic research was. So I, you know, I was educated in public schools and in tribal schools, um, but it was a very colonial education. So it prioritized um, written documents from the white perspective always. And then it kind of treated other sorts of history as anecdotal or kind of like, um, I don't know, like entertainment. Um, so I tried to really break that of myself through poetry and through writing. And with this book, I made this decision that I would prioritize um, anything that I heard from my family or my tribe first as the most authentic record. And then secondary historical research for me came from what would usually be primary historical research. So that flip was a huge kind of shift that I think poetry makes possible. Um, but I always thought of it as kind of decolonizing my own thinking patterns um, because it was, it was the exact opposite of what I've always been taught when it comes to research. And um, I think that if I were a fiction writer, maybe it would feel the same, but I've never done that, so I don't know. <laughs> um, but I do think poetry gave me a, a feeling of freedom to explore that without um, a lot of pressure from myself about, um, you know, that kind of need to have people be able to go back and find the citation or a lot of this is utterly private. Um, so it gave me some more agency and I think also even authority about which story, um, you know, to take in. And I found it to be, I mean, it was very moving for me. It was a big personal element of growth that came through my writing. And I got to hear all these stories from older family members that I listened to actively instead of passively. So I think like that was the biggest benefit that I, I always, you know, I grew up hearing all these wonderful stories, but I was listening to them uh, passively. And this way, I was really actively in attending. Um, so I really, I appreciate that experience that this gave me. And who are some of the living contemporary poets that you really enjoy reading? Um, I love Natalie Diaz. I'm really looking forward to her next collection. Um, Jericho Brown's work, um, I think, is fantastic. I, I keep buying his most recent book, and then I give it to people. So I've bought five, <laughs> and I'm going to buy number six. And it just, the book has that spirit about it. Um, uh, the book is The Tradition. And um, so those are two poets I really love and think are wonderful for teaching. I'm um, always a huge fan of Arthur Z's work and um, just finished his most recent collection. So there's just so many incredible living poets um, that it's, it's, an, it's an incredible moment to be a reader and a writer, but mostly a reader. Thanks for listening. You can find all the books mentioned in today's episodes in our show notes. The Desk Set is hosted by librarians Britta Barrett and Emily Calkins, produced by Britta Barrett and brought to you by the King County Library System. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts.